So let's pray, and we'll begin our time together. Father, it is such a blessing to be in your house, these brothers and sisters in the faith. I pray that you will take what I've prepared, that you will speak through it, that if it is not your will, that it will be forgotten. But if it is your will, Father, that it will change us, that we will be challenged from your word, that we will truly understand what it means to be your adopted sons and daughters. Amen. So let's begin by reading Hebrews 12, 4 through 17, and we're going to break it down verse by verse. Stop it. Okay, Hebrews 12, 4 through 17. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So we're going to tackle the first section, verses 4 through 11 where the theme seems to be discipline and suffering as a result of being set apart as members of the family of God. So verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This idea of struggling to resist sin, it builds off of the athletic contest that were described in verse 1, which Pastor Jeff touched on last week. Now, as the author of Hebrews has been talking about running a race, he's now shifting towards a more intense competition. And that's made evident by talking about someone who is shedding blood. And this makes sense because in the ancient Greek athletic contests, running I mean, is difficult. I don't like to run. It's like it's, yeah, okay. But it was not as difficult as boxing. Boxing was the ultimate test. And blood was often a component of these contests. Think modern-day MMA fights, okay? Blood was just part of that. So if running the race in verse 1 is 
an illustration of the Christian life, then the shedding of blood in verse 4 would illustrate a possible finish line, martyrdom. And this idea of someone dying for the sake of their faith and that being something heroic, it, it wasn't a new idea. In fact, the earliest martyrs, they saw this potential death and this death that they later experienced, they saw it as a reflection of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, being a Christian, it's, it's difficult. You're, you're going to go through rough patches here and there as part of your faith journey, but you haven't had to pay the ultimate price yet. And with that, the author, he's wrapping up this, this athletic illustration. Now he shifts gears in verses 5 and 6 in order to really lean into this idea of being set apart. 5 and 6 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now zeroing in on the idea of being a child of God, the author uses a quote from Proverbs 3, which also have parallels in Deuteronomy and the Psalms. And this is a rhetorical question. Have you forgotten? Okay, so this means that the original audience had not forgotten. Okay, but he's asking in such a way to, to remind them. Okay, so it would be fairly familiar to, or they would have been fairly familiar with this established teaching, this established exhortation. Now, continuing in verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? As always, when exegeting the scriptures, we've got to be aware of the context. We've got to be aware of uh, what the original author would have intended, what the original audience would have heard, okay? So that means here we have to be aware of wisdom literature. Now, within Jewish wisdom literature, like the previously mentioned Proverbs 3, discipline was also often used as a sign of a father's love for his children. And it's also important to note that while the ESV says sons, the use case here is not limited to those who are male. So some translations will say sons and daughters, others will say children, and this is okay. In fact, the ESV does make this switch in the next verse, verse 8. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, multiple times, the word discipline is being used in this passage, and the Greek word that is being trans here, translated here uh, was also the most basic word for um, education and training. It means that this isn't limited to a simple punishment like we might assume in the English. Now, for example, if you heard that tomorrow morning when you get to work that there is going to be a disciplinary hearing, would you be nervous? Probably, because discipline to our modern ears is usually something bad, usually something we don't like, something that we need to be afraid of, okay? But in this context, while it might mean correction, it would be in a more nurturing, um, instructional way than we're used to, okay? So be aware of that context. As for the illegitimate children phrase, for someone in the original audience, being called an illegitimate child was a massive insult. 
okay? To be illegitimate meant that you had no inheritance. You had no claim to your father's name. The author is using this example of being either an illegitimate child or a true son to make the argument that if a Christian is suffering for the sake of Jesus, then it must mean that they are a true adopted son, adopted daughter of God with a real inheritance. This is good, okay? Let's continue in verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? The author now chooses to use a hypothetical earthly father to further illustrate this point. Now, just as someone with a good father will respect them for their efforts to educate and train and raise them up, shouldn't we also have respect for our Heavenly Father who is training us up in righteousness? Okay? This is that point that he's trying to make, that he's trying to illustrate. He continues in verse 10 and 11, for they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. For many, this example of a father who loves his children, immediately it hits all the right points. It hits all the right buttons. It makes the argument understandable, and you're like, got it, okay? But that's not the case for everybody. One of my favorite musical artists is Andy Mineo, and he was raised by a single mom, had a biological father who barely gave him the time of day, and Andy's been open and raw about the lingering effect that this has had on him, especially now that he has grown and he's married, um, just what this has done to him, okay? On one recent track, he says, I've been waiting for the day for my father to come around, waiting for that moment when we would paint the town, but then it all hit me last night. Nobody's coming. I've been waiting for that moment when my heart heals, waiting for someone to take away the pain that I feel. Then it all hit me last night. Nobody's coming. Now contrast that sense of grief and loss with the image we have in Hebrews 12, which shows the child who is loved by their father, a child who is so loved that when instruction is needed, a father, he steps in and guides them lovingly in the right direction. This kind of father He's no deadbeat dad, sitting in his lazy boy, sitting in the bush light, more interested in what's going on on the TV than his kid in the next room. Okay, rather, Hebrews 12 is describing a healthy, loving relationship between a father and his child. And he does so in order to illustrate that this is the type of relationship that you and I have with our Heavenly Father. But like I said, for some people, this image of a loving father, it, it might might be too difficult to grasp. Over my years of doing youth ministry, I've had conversations with teens that would absolutely break your heart. Conversations that reflect the pain of an individual who has had to grow up way too fast because their innocence was stolen from them. Conversations that reflect an inability to understand God's love because they never experienced it at home. This love is just a completely foreign concept. I don't know every one of your stories, but I'm willing to bet there are more than a handful of you in this room who, like some of my former students, might not have grown up in a healthy home. And my heart truly breaks for you 
okay? And I get if this passage is a mystery that you are still seeking to understand because you read passages that are like, God loves me like a father, and you're just like, does not compute. So if you're having a mental roadblock because the idea of a loving father just doesn't make sense to you, or if you can't get past the word discipline because it's more associated with physical abuse rather than gentle instruction, I want you to know that you have permission to substitute in the author's example of athletics and competition from verses 1 through 4. Okay? After all, anyone who has lifted weights or trained for a sport knows that it's uncomfortable but beneficial. And the reason why the author of Hebrews uses both examples is so that everyone can understand the theology at hand. He's saying, hey, think of it like sports. Oh, you're not into sports? Think about it like family. Oh, you don't have a good family? Hey, look, I talked about sports. It's almost like God meant it that way. That's sarcasm. But regardless of how you're connecting the dots, it's important to remember that we're being told to be prepared for suffering that comes as a result of our faith in Jesus. And no, I feel like I shouldn't have to clarify this, but I'm going to anyway. This is not suffering like you get offended by someone's car rocking a chrome Darwin dinosaur eating a Jesus fish, or you just can't even because the fellowship team, yet again, didn't get your favorite flavor of coffee creamer. Like, that's not suffering, okay? Just, it's not. Did that hit home? (laughs) This passage is describing both with the image of athletic competition and the image of discipline, the type of pain which takes place at the hands of those who are hostile towards God. And this pain happens because we are set apart. We belong to Yahweh and not the world. So that gets us through verse 11, but we can't move forward until we are honest with ourselves, because the fact is that the idea of suffering as a result of our faith is not something you and I are personally familiar with as American believers. We're just not. Unlike our brothers and sisters around the world who face actual persecution, the prospect of prison, physical torture, even death, we have it easy But I urge you, like, really, really urge you to be careful because that fact just might cause you to make a slightly arrogant, maybe current events rooted comment or two. Perhaps something like, oh, it's coming, just you wait. And I say be careful because having that attitude unlocks a very important question that you probably don't want to think about, but we're going to think about it anyway because it's fun, and we're here together, and we're growing together, okay? An important question. If a Christian suffering for the sake of Jesus is a type of discipline, instruction, training that is meant for our benefit, is it really something to be feared and avoided? If it is from God, if it is meant for your benefit— Is it really something to be afraid of? Like I mentioned at the start, I was recently in in Kansas City with a handful of our our youth group students. 
the portion of Scripture that we discuss in our main gatherings, ties in beautifully with all of this. So we're going to pause Hebrews 12. We're going to jump over to 1 Peter 3, verses 14 through 17. We're going to further examine this idea of suffering for the sake of Jesus. 1 Peter 3, 14 through 17. I'll pause for a moment because we're not doing sword drills, and I'll give you a moment. Everyone knows what sword drills are, right? You just like, you race to find the passage. Catherine, you're just like, yeah. Not that I'm trying to pick on you, but like. First <clears throat> Peter 3, 14 through 17. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. I have overheard countless believers over the years make fear-based statements about a supposed impending loss of majority status that we enjoy as American Christians and that apparently we're facing. But why is this so scary? Why are we afraid of that? Okay, Peter straight up tells us, have no fear. Are we just skipping that verse? If it is true that we are set apart as sons and daughters of God, why are we troubled by the idea of losing our standing in the eyes of the world? Who cares? My theory is that it's possibly because suffering reveals a dangerous truth that we don't want to admit. Perhaps our hope has not been in Jesus, but rather it's in our own comfort. And when we're faced with that, we get defensive. and We're just like, mm, no, that's not me. But note that Peter, he doesn't say, fight back, win your culture for the cross, prevent suffering from happening, force everyone to accept your moral convictions. No, he says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And that's make a defense, not get defensive. He's saying to be prepared to share your testimony in accounting of what God has done in your life and why you have hope in Jesus. And that's it. Nowhere does he say to seek your own comfort. In fact, we are even to provide testimony with gentleness and respect. So let that sink in just for a moment. As you mentally scroll back through your comment history on social media and your interactions with people, because I don't know about you, but Peter is making me a bit uncomfortable because I know how I have behaved over the years with those who have poked at my faith, and how defensive I have gotten, and how I have said things that did not reflect Christ. I know those things. I remember those things. I have definitely not always responded with gentleness and respect, but that is what I'm being challenged for right here, and that makes me slightly uncomfortable. Peter even says to be prepared so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He doesn't say, hey, if you're slandered. For Peter, it's a foregone conclusion that this will happen. You will be slandered. 
for the simple fact that the world does not share your hope in Jesus. So again I ask, should the possibility of the possibility of losing status in the eyes of the world or enduring suffering as a result of righteousness be something that we are afraid of. doesn't mean that we have to enjoy it. doesn't mean that we have to just be like, yeah, pain! <laughs> it's not like that. Feel the burn! It's, no. But we don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to batten down the hatches and, and get all defensive about it. Because he says, it's going to happen. Christian, if you love Jesus, guess what? The world's not going to like you. As you contemplate that, let's jump over to 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. Chapter 4, 12 through 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the, glory, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter is saying, don't act like it's strange or unexpected that the world without hope is offended by yours in Christ. Don't be surprised. If you are insulted for the name of Jesus, you're blessed because it means you are his, that you belong to him. So don't kid yourself by trying to claim that your aggressive or defensive attitude, which undoubtedly is cloaked in righteous indignation, of course, is somehow okay, because that is not the behavior of one who is set apart. And we don't like that, because it's much easier to get defensive. But here it says, don't act like that. My friends, you and I, we will probably face increasing insults and slander because of our faith in Jesus. Just, we probably will. And it will most likely continue to be minor compared to what other Christians have experienced throughout history. For the simple fact that we are blessed to live where we live. But, I feel like, like in all caps, in bold, but... That doesn't mean that we should give in to the temptation to seek our own temporary comfort by behaving like those who are still lost. I get that comfort is good. I get it. Do I look like someone who likes to go running? No. Okay? Like, I get it. But we are not to act like the world. Today, just like yesterday, the decade before that, a hundred years before that, a thousand years before that, the world continues to not be your friend because it is not a friend of God. To expect this sinful world to treat you fairly or as one of its own shows that while you may claim to be a Christian, your allegiance is misplaced. Don't be surprised by a world that doesn't have hope being upset with you who have hope. So follow God. Not a news outlet, not a politician, not an advocacy group, not a celebrity, not a country, or anything of man's making. 
Follow your heavenly Father. He is the source of your hope. And if you end up suffering as a result of reflecting his hope and his mercy and his righteousness to this broken world, then do so while giving glory to the name of Jesus. Don't turn around and act like you're one of them. That's stupid. Again, I find this so encouraging, amazing, that the topic we are scheduled to hit in Hebrews lines up perfectly with 1 Peter. And if you want to think of that as a coincidence, feel free. You're wrong, but, you know, feel free. As for me, God is good. His Spirit is with us. I gotta believe that we are addressing this topic that has been talked about at our youth conference, that we are singing songs about this morning because it is His will that this is challenging us because God's like, yes, Dewitty free, we need to talk about this. So let's jump back to Hebrews 12. We're going to continue through the rest of our passage. We're going to go verse by verse. Start with with Hebrews 12, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, therefore, meaning that as a result of the discipline, as a result of the instruction that you are receiving, get to work. Drooping hands, weak knees, they were common descriptions of laziness, weak motivation throughout scriptures. So, you know, next time you work with somebody or you hire somebody, being like, hey, drooping hands, weak knees, get to work. You know, and then if they get upset, be like, it's just the Bible. No, that's, that's not gentleness and respect, so yes, look, don't do that, okay? But these were common descriptions of, of laziness and weak motivation. It's found throughout the scriptures, okay? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, and elsewhere, this phrase is used. Someone who is unable or unwilling to press forward with the work that needs to be done, they need to lift up their drooping hands. They need to strengthen those knees. And what is the work that needs doing? Okay? He says, therefore, so that refers back to what we just read. He gives us this, this command of what we're supposed to do, and what work is it for? Well, that's in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, everyone. Does that mean everyone? Well, I hope not, because it's hard enough to get along with Christians who you like, but everyone means everyone. And then you add in brothers and sisters who you can barely make eye contact with on a Sunday morning because you're upset with them or you have different convictions or whatever, and that's a pretty big ask. And then it says everyone, and the Bible is getting in the way of my Christianity. (sighs) It's important to recognize, though, that the author after he says everyone, he's not talking about salvation. We know this because it's already been established that salvation is from Jesus and Jesus only. Amen? Okay, we know this. Okay, so what does he mean like no one will see the Lord? Okay, well, instead of being literal, the word see is being used as another way of saying to understand or to comprehend. Ah, I see. Like, ah, I see that loud noise was from the speaker. Ah, I see. So not with your eyes, 
but your comprehension, your understanding, okay? And since holiness is another word for being sanctified or to be set apart, a phrase that hopefully you recognize keeps being mentioned, the warning here is that you are not beha- that if you are not behaving like a child of God, you won't be able to understand the character of God. Let me say that again. If you are not behaving like a child of God, you won't be able to understand the character of God. Now, with that, the author continues into verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This verse serves as as a bridge from doing the hard work of pursuing peace and holiness to what comes next in verses 16 and 17. The author does this by using a little play on words, which is fun. First, there is bitterness, like you might feel towards someone who you don't have peace with. Clever, okay? But second, bitterness as in the quote that he's using, and this comes from Deuteronomy 29. And in that passage, there is a bitter root, and this serves as a picture of apostasy, Apostasy, apostasy is the falling away from one's faith, okay? So keep that in the front of your mind as we, as we push forward. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, hold up. How did we go from seeking peace to bitterness to sexual immorality to selling a birthright in three verses? Well, because the author of Hebrews is awesome. Don't worry. I promise this is all connected. Just got to keep in mind that reference to apostasy. Like, that is the key here, okay? Esau, who was the firstborn son of Isaac, uh, grandson of Abraham, made a, a number of choices in life that, shall we say, were not great. For instance, the sexual, sexual immorality, well, that's in reference to how he married foreign wives that his parents didn't approve of, and he didn't care. He was just like, she pretty, going to marry her. Also, I already have one. Yay! Sexual immorality. Okay? And then there's this odd legal transaction he made with his brother Jacob. We're going to read about that in Genesis 25, 29 through 34. So, you have your Bible all the way at the beginning. Genesis chapter 25, verses 29 through 34. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. and He was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, Edom meaning red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob says, swear to me now. So he swore to him, sold him his birthright. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So Esau, he comes into camp after being on a hunting trip, and he's hungry. Jacob tells him that if he sells him his birthright, then he'll give him something to eat. Now, maybe this was just like a brother being sarcastic or something. We don't know, okay? But Esau, who is the focus here, he flippantly agrees and just enjoys some food, and in return, gives up the future privileges that had been entitled to him as the firstborn. He's like, I don't care. Sure, you can have it. Jacob might have been like, really? That worked? Well, okay. Okay, 
But again, I, I find it interesting that lots of time we focus on Jacob and like his name being trickster, and we just kind of skip over like Esau being an idiot. <laughs> that's interesting, okay? But that's like, there's a reason why this is here, okay? At first, you might think that the bitterness mentioned in verse 15 is what Esau later felt toward his brother, but I don't think it's as simple as that. I mean, yes, there was definitely animosity that they felt towards each other, but I don't think bitterness and like that feeling is the point here, okay? Because remember that the author is quoting from Deuteronomy 29, and in that passage says a bitter root, and this is used as a warning against apostasy, the turning back um, or turning away from God's promises. So in here in Hebrews, Esau illustrates apostasy. He repeatedly did not pursue the promises of God and even sold his inheritance for a single meal. He was a guy who was captive to his desires in the here and now. He thought those Hittite women, they're good looking, and he wanted them. He didn't care what his parents trained him for or he didn't care what he knew to be right. And then he was hungry. He wanted to eat. He didn't care about what was holy and righteousness. He didn't he didn't strive to be set apart. He was, he was the firstborn, and I don't care. I'm hungry, okay? He didn't care that something greater than a single meal was waiting for him as part of his birthright. He just didn't care. He wanted what he wanted, and he wanted it now. Unfortunately, verse 17 reminds us, Esau had no chance to fix those poor choices. For you know, verse 17, that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing— he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau definitely, definitely regretted his choice later. Okay? In Genesis 27, he cries and he pleads with his father to bless him also, just like Jacob. But it was too late. Jacob, you know, tricked his father and all that. But Esau had, had made that agreement. He was just like, yeah, sure, give me some soup. Okay? But now it's too late. There is no more chance, no more opportunity to turn to repent of his ways because what was done was done. He had made his choice. His choice was to pursue his own desires instead of the promises of God. Now that's a lot all to take from this short passage from Hebrews 12. We got suffering, being set apart, the discipline, holiness, apostasy. But to boil it down, what we can take away is failure to live as a child of God who is set apart, begins when you reject opportunities to know his character and instead embrace the things of this world. Failure to live as a child of God, who is set apart, belongs when you reject opportunities to know his character and instead embrace the things of this world. Now, we could end there, okay? But there's a lingering issue. We kind of brushed past it before. What did it mean in verse 14 when the author tells us to be living at peace with everyone? And why does that make me uncomfortable? This is what we're going to talk about. This deserves a deeper look. This is directly addressing our behavior. Okay? The text doesn't seem to be overly focused on simply not getting mad. Okay? So what else could it mean? What does it look like for us to live at peace? Well, first, it's important to know that this exhortation is not a one-off for Hebrews. This is not a new idea, okay? It's an idea that is clearly communicated all over scriptures. Isaiah says to seek peace through justice. David says in the Psalms to pursue peace. Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer 
that forgiveness of God is limited to those who forgive their neighbors, and so on and so forth. This idea of peace is continually brought up. Okay? Living at peace is something that is abnormal, though. It's a, a quality of those who are set apart. And it's why it's included, it's why it's included in the same breath as holiness. Holiness being set apart, meaning sanctified. Okay? Living at peace is not normal behavior. It's weird. That's why it's something that we are called to. And as you might have guessed, First Peter has wisdom to share on this topic. So, just, why? Like, why did it work out this way? I don't know. God is good, amen? Chapter 3, 8 and 9 of 1 Peter. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Unity, sympathy, love, tenderness, humility. These are characteristics that radiate outward from the, the grace, the love, the compassion of Jesus. It's almost like fingers coming out from the palm of your hand. Okay? These are virtues that all come from that. Okay? And these virtues describe what it looks like for a Christian to strive for holiness, to strive for peace, to live set apart. These are the things that, that define a Christian, that a Christian looks like, okay? that their behavior emulates. Okay? And this should start in the church. Unfortunately, many people have experienced the opposite within the family of God. And it is all too common to hear unbelievers claim that, yeah, they like Jesus, but not the church. Instead of unity, they see division. Instead of sympathy, they see disagreement. Instead of love, they see apathy. Instead of tenderness, they see animosity. Instead of humility, they see arrogance. We're supposed to be different, but too often we fail. What are we doing acting like everybody else? Unity, sympathy, love, tenderness, humility, those are the things that should define us. That when the world says, yeah, that church, they're like, they definitely do those things. But do they? Is that what they say about us? Let's flip back to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. You'll see what I mean about this, this idea of being different. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Chosen, royal, holy, set apart, once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Christian, you are different from your neighbor who doesn't follow Jesus. You are not merely someone who is busy on Sunday mornings. 
okay? When your neighbor's like, hey, let's get together. Oh, yeah, I'm busy. It's Sunday. No! Goodness. You are in exile. You are an alien who does not belong to this world. You, my friend, are God's adopted son. You are his adopted daughter, and you belong to him. And with that comes the benefit of having a full inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. But if you turn your back on that inheritance, if your behavior shows that you are still chasing after all the comforts of this world, then you are no better than Esau, who knew what had been set aside for him, but chose to toss it aside for a bowl of soup. If you do not recognize that you are called to something greater because of what has been set aside for you through Jesus. You are just saying, eh, I want some soup. I don't want all that. The ways of this world will pass away. The soup will go bad. Okay? A new heaven, a new earth will come. King Jesus will reign forever. And when that happens, we won't be looking back with any sense of loss, with any sense of regret over missing out on what the world had offered us because our hope and our joy will finally be made complete by the one who saved us. We are the church. We must, as it says in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without unity, sympathy, love, tenderness, humility, without those characteristics of a Christian, we will fail to be ones who strive for peace. We will fail to be ones that strive for holiness. We will fail to comprehend the character of God. We will fail to understand that He is greater than anything this world has to offer. So don't be like Esau. Don't trade away the hope that you have in Jesus for the ways of this world. I get, I get it, okay? I get that there is a real temptation to try and avoid suffering. After all, to paraphrase Hebrews 12, 11, it ain't fun. But if your allegiance is to Jesus, then you have an inheritance in heaven that will make it all worthwhile. I promise you, this is what the scripture says. As we close our time together, let's remind ourselves of the words of Jesus. Let's remind ourselves what Jesus said regarding how we are to treat others. These, these things that he said that are so alien, that are so foreign, that don't make any sense. But he says, you, my disciples, this is how you are to behave. Luke 6, 26-36. This is the words of our Savior. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you are good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love 
your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Let's pray. Lord God, your scriptures are scary. They are encouraging. Your words are comforting. As we push forward into this week, Father, I pray that you will give us opportunities to be different, to show to not only our brothers and sisters here, but to this world that we don't belong here, that we belong to you. We thank you for the opportunities you give us, even when they aren't comfortable, even when it's suffering. We thank you that you are guiding us towards righteousness. Father, as we wrap up our time today, I pray that you will keep this in our minds, that we won't be able to forget it. In your son's holy name, amen. Amen. If you please stand. Your grace that leads the sinner home from death to life forever and sings the song of righteousness by blood and not by merit. Your grace that reaches far and wide to every tribe and nation has called my heart to end